I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means, on infiltration instead of invasion. You have all the money in the world. You have all the power you need. What's the point? What's the end goal? He said the end goal was to get everybody chipped control the whole society. Citizen journalists, we have an army of digital soldiers. You're here because you've made a decision about something in your life. You can't sit back. You have a responsibility. We must, you have to, have to fight for this country.
It's a gift. Greetings and welcome back to Gnosis for our second episode. Today we are featuring independent scholar Joseph Atwill. Mr. Atwill is the best-selling author of Caesar's Messiah and Shakespeare's Secret Messiah. The topic of today's program is Exposing British Freemasonry as the Source for the Advent of Modern Zionism as well as the mystical order of the Theosophical Society, whose founders laid the groundwork for what became the Nazi movement, responsible for the reintroduction and co-option of the swastika symbol, one that was used in the creation of the occult-obsessed Nazi party. Joe provides an incredible dissertation on the subject, exposing the hidden hand of United Grand Lodge of England British Freemasonry, revealing the chief architects of World War II, a war which claimed the lives of 70 to 85 million men, women, and children, and culminated in the creation of the Zionist State of Israel, the United Nations, NATO, and nuclear weapons. Setting the stage for the space race and undermining of the United States' liberty by creating the military-industrial complex, which would go on to create a seemingly never-ending war economy. Later in the episode, I explain my perspective on why the Bolsheviks chose to use the swastika and why it is considered the most important symbol in Freemasonry, as well as how this connects to geological catastrophism, false flag attacks, and the Great Year Cycle. If you believe in independent media and enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a monthly subscriber, making a purchase in our online store, sharing this content with your friends and family, or leaving us a comment online. We are heavily shadow banned, and the only way we can continue to bring you this information is with your continued support. I hope you find this material educational. It took at least 100 plus hours to put it all together, and there's a lot of material here you won't find anywhere else. I'm reporting truthfully on a topic that is likely to lead to even more censorship and economic hardship. If you appreciate knowing the truth and understanding the nature of our collective adversaries, then please consider supporting this ongoing research and reporting. Gnosis is not for the faint of heart nor weak of stomach. We put the AK back in your chakra points. Godspeed and party on, truth seekers. You know, I've read Caesar's Messiah. I've got my copy here. I've got. There it is. Yeah. Oh yeah, the old Shakespeare book. Yeah. Wonderful works, and uh, and I heard you mention before that you had another book in the works about uh, essentially the the occult establishment that's been running the world. And uh, would you like to update us on the progress of that? Sure. Um, the book is called "The Secret Language of the Oligarchs," um, and it is uh, an attempt to extend the analysis of the first two books into the modern literature and to show that, in fact, <clears throat> uh, many of the well-known authors uh, who participate in our culture are actually communicating ideas of the oligarchs. Um, and, and it focuses on uh, Brave New World, um, Huxley's book. Um, and uh, I was going to bring it out uh, several years ago, but um, just events just kept seeming to be needed to be included. And then when the uh, COVID thing started, I tried to put this into the book and then it ended up being two distinct books. <laughs> 
So I'll probably bring them both out uh, this year toward the end of the year. Um, I'm, I am concerned um, just that um, they're very controversial and um, uh, you know, different people who've done reviews of them are also worried about this, that it'll have a negative effect. Um, but I just think that, you know, if you believe this to be the case, you have a responsibility to bring it out. And so uh, if people are interested, um, the, some of the chapters, or at least uh, preliminary versions of the chapters are available. Um, if you just Google my name and The Tempest, you'll see the analysis I did of the Shakespearean play, The Tempest, which is really the beginning of the book, because this is where the expression Brave New World comes from. So I do an analysis of the play showing uh, its occulted meaning, and uh, you can easily see where the rest of the book goes by reading this uh, version of the chapter, which is online. It's not hidden behind a paywall. And then I also did a review, uh, several reviews of um, Catcher in the Rye, which are also online. Uh, it's another book that's uh, part of the uh, uh, collection of analysis. And um, I, I showed the occulted uh, meaning of that book. Uh, it's basically a gigantic uh, Freemason initiation ritual. <laughs> and um, I also explained why the book is uh, so often associated with assassinations. Um, and uh, and so that's, that's uh, you know, just... Uh, you know, I'm not an academic. <clears throat> I, I just do these things as I, you know, I'm moved by time, opportunity, and spirit, you know, to do them. And uh, um, I am also, you know, ambivalent to some extent. I mean, when I did the analysis of Caesar's Messiah, I, I got done with it, which was basically just uh, trying to uh, solve an interesting puzzle for myself. And when I was completed, I, I thought, well, I should bring this out. But then I started having second thoughts about, well, what is the, you know, what will be the conclusion of all of this? And I just put the analysis in a box for years. And then eventually, uh, I just came to the conclusion that um, some people would benefit from it, for sure. And uh, everyone has the right to the truth. And I thought it was the analysis was clear enough that a lot of people would would uh, come to an understanding of Christianity was different, you know, than the one that they held. And so um, I, I I brought it out, and um, I still don't know if it was a good idea or not, but but it's out, and it's been, um, you know, it's it's been a, as far as a you know a book of selling, it's been beyond my wildest expectations. It's it's been very popular. There was a documentary made about the book, which has been seen by millions of people. And uh, and so slowly this understanding of uh, uh, kind of the story of Jesus Christ as a typologic story, uh, not as not as history or as religion, but rather as a kind of Roman sarcasm, basically a mockery. Um, it's getting out there and um, and and uh, you know, I mean, obviously, the many people are contesting the analysis, but I think over time, it's just it's sort of swallowing all of the critics because the analysis is just so simple and uh, it's so obvious. Oh yeah, you did an incredible job. I've I'm I'm still blown away by the precision of the alignments between Josephus's uh, 
recalling yeah. of Titus's battle campaign in the ministry of Jesus. It's one-to-one, it's inerring, and I've yet to see any uh, biblical scholar authentically deal with the evidence. So, um, Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, Christian scholars that, that uh, you know, attack it uh, because they want to maintain their faith or... Uh, and then one thing I've noticed is that uh, academics who publish, you know, who had other Jesus theories, hmm. they can never accept it because they, we seem to be condemned to, if we write something, you know, if you have to defend it forever, it's much harder to, uh, to have an open mind once you've actually been in print. So, hmm. um, you know, like an interesting uh, trajectory was uh, Dr. Robert Price, you know, he was the one who first uh, brought out the expression of parallel mania against me when uh, way back in like 2002 or something like that when the first books came out of Caesar's Messiah and um, and then over time he's warmed to the theory and now he strongly supports it so How about that? it's an example of uh, an academic who's actually open-minded enough to uh, to change their position and and uh, Dr. Price is a you know he, he's he's very uh, widely published. He's published many many books, so it was hard for him, I'm sure, to uh, make the transition. But um, you know, I mean, it's it, the the see the funny thing about Caesar Messiah is is that um, you you don't really need my participation. I mean, I, I show the 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 parallels, and you know, some of them are kind of occulted, sort of hard to figure out. But honestly if you just lay out the the battle of uh, Judea that Titus you know waged and against the ministry of Jesus like I do in, in the chapter called the Flavian signature um, I think it's pretty much self-evident you that you know one is dependent upon the other that uh, the ministry of Jesus was created out of this this story that I mean because for one thing, so many of the parallels are not conceptual. They're just literally historical events because they wove in all these historical events into the, uh, into the storyline of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the destruction of the temple, the encircling of the city with a wall, the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, uh, the abomination of desolation. I mean, these are historical events that Josephus recorded and, um, uh, you know, ended up in, in the story of Jesus Christ. Um, and you add to that many parallels, which have already been picked over by scholars, you know, because they're so vivid, they're so obvious. Um, and that collection of just what other scholars have noticed and the historical events, um, the, the thing which, which my insight um, had, that, that had weight here, was simply that they're occurring in the same sequence. I mean, that was a brand new idea. It had never been seen somehow, it had been overlooked. And uh, it's just baffling why it had been overlooked because sequence is an event, is a structural aspect of typology. You know, it makes, it makes typologic linkage uh, easier to understand. And uh, there, there's examples of it in the uh, New Testament itself that are not linked to, into Josephus, but rather are linked backwards uh, uh, to the Torah, which, which use sequence. So the idea that sequence had never been applied as a, uh, you know, as an analytic technique to try to make sense out of Jesus's ministry uh, is really just a, 
you know, catastrophic intellectual oversight. Um, and it's really a shame because if it had been widely known, you know, it would have, we would have had a whole different history. Um, right. You know, we would have changed, the history would have changed because it wouldn't have been weighed down by such a, uh, an irrational religion. Wow. That's, that's something to really consider how different and our place in reality would be if people yeah. understood that this is just the oligarchs mind controlling the masses and, and really enslaving you to cognitive dissonance uh, with all this trickery and deceit, not to mention the genocides that were enabled by it. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully we'll access a, a better timeline for humanity. But that's that's the thing. I'm glad you released this. And I'm, I'm I you know, I, I've heard you during uh, different interviews bring up that you're maybe uh, hesitating to acknowledge that this is a good thing. But I think it's entirely a good thing because we have the capacity to stand on truth and operate in a better reality with that foundation. So uh, I just want to say thank you for your work. Cause, uh, oh, well, I appreciate that. Those kind words. I mean a lot. Um, yeah, I, I've, I, um, I was somewhat nervous about sort of how it would affect my personal <laughs> kind of situation. Um, and uh, you know, there was some concerns about that and there've been some episodes whatnot but uh overall it's been an it's been very positive and i am just on a personal level glad i brought it out um I'm, i certainly think it's useful culturally and of course more than ever now i mean i'm a tremendous critic of the uh, uh government uh response to this uh, coronavirus situation it really uh strikes me as being a step toward just a technologic di dictatorship i think uh, the public really needs to have a um a powerful democratic response to this you know and and to um to try to uh change directions i mean we have been so bamboozled so made frightened yes you know it's it's very much like a religious uh, you know structure for us and um uh it's it leads to the same place it leads to a kind of feudal system a slave system yes. um uh, you know, just this last week, looking at uh, the videos coming out of Shanghai, it's just been heartbreaking, you know, to see people trapped in their houses. Um, there's no science at all in back of this. There is just the ham-handed power of dictatorship telling people that this is what's good for them. You know, very much like um, the uh, Roman imperial class used Christianity. You know, with the feudal system, very similar. I mean, they were more primitive, but it's it's the exact same phenomena. And so, um, I'm glad that that uh, you know I've been able to add something to the skepticism concerning oligarchic propaganda um, that the public has. And this, to me, is the uh, the most valuable contribution that that uh, you know my work can possibly make is if it contributes in any way to just the citizenry being more skeptical and and uh, because propaganda uh, like for example Christianity or all versions of propaganda you have to give the individual who's wanting to damage you trust you have to believe that this individual is um, is is saying things for your benefit giving you ideas for your benefit there has to be trust once you're skeptical once you think well you know this person may be having an ulterior motive propaganda just doesn't work at all wow. and i i think that's kind of why um i believe that uh, they brought out 
this, you know, maneuver at this time is because the independent media was really growing just dramatically. And uh, you can see that legacy media, the propaganda media, the Fox News, CNN, they were collapsing. And at the same time, the legacy, the independent media was just blossoming. I mean, obviously, it's not in a form that is perfect, for heaven's sakes, you know, but all of the, um, the, the podcasts and the exchanging of information that was going on was really having a tremendous effect. There's no question. And it's really historical. Um, when was the last time the public had a chance to analyze information skeptically for itself? You know, I mean, if you think about it, we've always been enslaved by their domination of media. Yes. And that's the primary, you know, aspect that they use to enslave us is they dominate the media. And because of that, the normal power of human intellect doesn't get a chance to serve us. It doesn't serve democracy. It's manipulated for people that are giving us typically an illusion of democracy or workers paradise or some, you know, reason why we need to give them the power. But when once the independent media began, um, really, it, it uh, you know, it, it just, it, it has taken off. And I think that they could see that their days were numbered. I mean, if in my mind, if um, if the independent media went on unchecked for another decade, the whole oligarchic structure would have collapsed. Wow. I honestly believe that it was falling apart that quickly. And so this is really kind of a, you know, they, they have been preparing for this for, you know, for hundreds of years, but I think the timetable was rushed. I think it's, it's pretty ham-handed. I think that the vaccine um, is, it strikes me that as I've studied it, that it's really simply too lethal and too obvious a um, malevolent mm. agent um, that it isn't going to really spawn a response to it as such. In other words, I, I can easily see a new culture emerging, an entire new culture, human culture emerging uh, that has as its basis um, sort of the, the skepticism of the independent media uh, fusing with the anger um, and, and skepticism of the people who survived the vaccine but have been damaged or who had family members that were lost or something. Because this thing, um, I think over time, the effects of the vaccine get worse. And uh, I think we're, gonna, we're already starting to see now in the all-causes death statistics. I don't know if you're following that, but... Yes all of the, the countries that are highly vaccinated are having these unusual increases in deaths, not in the group that are susceptible to respiratory viruses, uh, the old people. These deaths are occurring in the young people. There's been a very profound mix shift, which can't be explained by the lockdown or by the coronavirus that is directly related to the vaccine. Um, and they're trying to hide it, but the propaganda with which they can hide it is um, becoming less and less effective. So, uh, you know, this is why, you know, you're to be praised really for your work because if um, the vaccine, if they'd had this technology like, like 70 years ago, no one would have been able to resist it. They would have had 100% people who have, who have signed up, like with polio. I mean, everyone took it. Yeah. Um, but now because of, people like yourself 
there have been, um, there is a, just an, an element of skepticism that didn't exist. And it is, um, you know, it is a crack through which light can get, if you know what I mean. In other words, we've been sealed off. We have been ossified. We have been kept in the dark. Um, they controlled the media. That was the primary tool. But when that little crack became possible, suddenly light rushed in in, in, in the form of the, the people who wanting, you know, the energized, who had the energy and, and the confidence, you know, to go out and to create podcasts. And it is just, the effect is just incredible. And, um, and to that, there's going to be added very shortly um, the revelation of uh, malevolence on the part of the ruling class. I mean, that is, it's just going to be at there. They're going to try to um, camouflage the, the damage that their vaccine is doing um, and, and the irrationality of the lockdowns. They'll try to camouflage this in various ways. But I think I think it's the horse is out of the barn. I think that they're there. I call it a diminishing returns. I think the more they try to use propaganda at this point to obfuscate their evil, the more people they drive from the darkness into the light. I think it's it's having just the completely opposite effect because there's so many people now on the cusp. There's so many people who are wondering what in the heck is going on. Yes. And so when they use propaganda, there is a many people who will look at it and analyze it uh, as as to what why what is really in back of this as to just be mind controlled and move back into the you know into the sheep pen so to speak. So. Um, I would just like to congratulate you and to wish you um, energy and power, you know, going forward. Um, it's just critical, absolutely critical that um, uh, that we use the Internet uh, as, as just as intensely and as actively as we can over the next uh, year, two years. These are absolutely critical times. And so we really want to, um, you know, if you look at um, the uh, you know, how quickly legacy media is collapsing. And CNN, Fox News, they're just literally going to zero. Um, they will try to replace that that media with their own shills, you know, people who are pretending to be in the independent media. Yeah. They're fairly easy to spot, um, but it doesn't really matter. I think once skepticism is out, the, I, I trust in the human mind. I, I do believe that we are cursed with reason and uh, if we if we have if we are open to it, um, it will take us into the light, and and we'll start having an absolutely brand new culture, a new world culture, because we have been attacked as as a, as a human race, and and all of the ethnicities uh, will um, have something in common once we, or most of the ethnicities, once we um, start moving uh, against the oligarchs, once we start realizing they have to be replaced politically. Yes. Well, I, I, that's, uh, see, this is the type of, <laughs> for lack of a better word, dispensation we need because we, we need to understand the nature of our enemy, what their goals and ambitions were, how they've laid it out to us explicitly through this. Yeah. And, and, and you've revealed these techniques, and I really look forward to your next book because uh, I was, uh, Caesar's Messiah and, and Shakespeare's Secret Messiah are, are great primers for understanding, of course, typology, but just also the, the sadistic nature of these people to mock their victims. And, uh, yeah, I'll send you a copy. Um, I'll have one available. I'll send it to you online for, for you to do a review of it, uh, not not for release, but I, 
I'll send you a copy so you can check it out. Yeah, it's a. <laughs> if I do say so myself, it's um the two books are pretty um. Uh, they're good reads, <laughs> and uh, there's a lot in them. But as I said, you know, you can, and, and I hope people do this, just go to uh, Google my name in The Tempest, mm. and I think you'll get a complete understanding of what the expression Brave New World is actually referring to and, and, uh, and what, this, the, the, what the um, symbolic foundation, you know, of, of the play is. Mm. And then if you look from that to... Um, uh, to uh, Catcher in the Rye, it'll it'll be perfectly clear. I also suggest that people read the analysis I did of, um, which is also in the book, uh, though not as a full chapter, but of um, I am the walrus. Uh, uh, yeah, um, I am the walrus, because again, you know, with the, the seemingly nonsensical Beatles song. Yeah. Um, this is an example of the secret language of the oligarchs, and uh, it, it is not particularly difficult to decode once you bring the skepticism, sort of an understanding of who we're dealing with, you know, to trying to understand where these lyrics are coming from and what they mean. And uh, um, the only thing I wanted, I wanted, I, it's in the book, and I wanted, it's not in the uh, in the online version of Catcher and Rye analysis. Is I I realized that uh, the the uh, the the title of the book. Is, is very much a part of the cryptic sort of symbolism. The catcher in the rye is the, uh, is the individual who takes a scythe through the field. Hmm. In other words, it's the grim reaper. Yeah. And this, this hasn't really been noticed before. And that's really, it gives a very much of a clarification as to um, the, the Burns's poem, how, how it relates to the symbolism of the book and also to the final scene where Holden Caulfield is uh, has the experience with the children on horses, and I think you, everyone can understand that a lot simpler. You know, once uh, once that that aspect of, of symbolism is is uh, decoded, so that's what that's what I you know would point out is that it's a you know it's a Freemason initiation, which is really a celebration of the apocalypse. Wow, yes, and uh, and speaking of Freemasonry, you, you've made some. Uh bold claims which i look forward to uh investing more time in, in understanding but you had mentioned lord palmerston who, who belonged to the quattro coronati lodge and his connection to the advent of theosophy via uh, madame blavatsky the creation of zionism and ultimately... yeah that's just critical analysis um uh, palmerston was a grandmaster freemason he didn't belong to the quattro coronati that lodge was developed oh i'm sorry oh 50 years or so later on, but it's a, it's a central, um, it's very much a center centerpiece of sort of our modern struggle. Um, and I did an analysis of Blavatsky. Um, you know, people have an understanding of the, the Nazi party as being Germanic coming from the German people. It was a response perhaps to, you know, the, the struggles that uh, they felt after the Versailles Treaty was applied to them, you know, something like that. There are different explanations. But actually, it was developed completely out of uh, British Freemasonry. Um, and, I, and I actually uh, have this in the work, but I also have a, done a podcast, uh, episode 45 of uh, Powers and Principalities, where I lay out these ideas, where I show that, I mean, Blavatsky... Um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how long a diversion, you know, you want to 
go, go into this, but because it takes a while to go through, there's so much stuff. But um, Blavatsky claims to be a mystic, right? She, you know, like a OTO, uh, um, you know, this kind of mystical, uh, you know, she wrote um, these books, which are, you know, on their surface absurd, you know, they're, they're these just kind of um, talking about sort of kind of uh, like airy fairy divine forces and structures and things and she claimed that you know she was in the Himalayas or something you know having a mystical experience but actually she was a mad dog uh, Freemason zealot and and warrior yeah. uh, she was with uh, Garibaldi at the Battle of Montana against the Pope the papal forces in Italy and um 1840 something, you know, these facts, I haven't looked at this in so long, but anyway, so she was with Garibaldi. She took a a couple bullets in her arm and shoulder, and she also nearly had it was almost delimbed by one of the swords fights that she got into. So you can see that she's just an absolute mad dog battler. Garibaldi brought her with him to London, where he was meeting with uh, other high-level Freemasons, and she continued to wear the red shirt. That's really uh, indicative of the kind of zealotry that she had. This was the uh, the red shirts were the the title and and the costume that uh, Garibaldi's Masonic army wore, which then becomes. Uh, um, Mussolini picked up this theme with the black shirts and then the brown shirts or one or the other. But anyway, so the Nazis then developed this uh, shirt wearing, color shirt wearing thing. But Blavatsky was was taken to um, to London and given a kind of what's called a Masonic passport, which is a document that's in existence. It's online that somehow they got copies of it were made. I think it was actually she used it fairly often and it just it just states that she's to be given whatever she needs. Wow! Just and it's, it, and it's, it's signed by John Yarker, who's the head of this this most important lodge in British Freemasonry. Just give to her what she needs. She's working with Charles Southern. He's sort of her handler. He's a uh, ma- Grand Master Freemason, and they set up um, the uh, Theosophical Society, and it's just incredibly well funded. They buy a whole giant building in Manhattan and uh, she can travel around and but anyway all of the if you look at you know the Nazi phenomena in Germany and you just break it into its pieces and and to the the individuals who are promoting it as it becomes because it has this long trajectory before Hitler comes into existence you know all of these things come through Blavatsky every single one the, the swastika the um, uh, the the idea of Aryan supremacy. I mean, in Germany, they didn't even know what the word Aryan meant. <laughs> Blavatsky is one who brings it. The idea of national socialism. This is through her, uh, the Bellamy brothers, who who are theosophical followers of Blavatsky. Um, they promoted anti-Semitism for a while, um, in order to create the the dialectic and. Uh, so the protocols of the elders of Zion, yes. which you know were very uh, culturally powerful uh, after World War One. I. I mean, th- these they were supposedly discovered by Blavatsky's secretary. Yeah, it's ludicrous. And then, and then of course, it, even more absurd is following 
the war, they needed, when they were starting to promote Israel, they needed to end the anti-Semitism. So they found that out that the protocols were a forgery. Right. Now, the individual who made the discovery found a book in a library in Istanbul. I, I mean, what, what the heck? Yeah. Um, but it was Alan Dulles. Of all the head of the CIA. I mean, it just happened to be in a bookstore. I mean, you, you, you just, it's just ludicrous. But anyway, so then then you have the, the money which finances the Nazi party. And this is coming from Montague Norman vis-a-vis um, -vis Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, and th this is sort of an interesting segue because Montague Norman was a follower of Blavatsky. And again, why was the, the Theosophical Society used in this way? I mean, in hindsight, it's fairly obvious. They wanted to camouflage all of this with mysticism. Yeah. Mysticism is a form of just raw irrationality with which they can put these ideas into culture, normalize them, right? It's, it's you know, it, it, it just makes the human mind have a harder time thinking of them as propaganda. So you also have uh, like Aleister Crowley is part of this as well, right? With all of the sex magic and the mysticism that he's promoting. He's coming from the exactly the same group of people. And it's a part, and for the same purpose, it's again, it's just to lay this mysticism as a way to break down Christian society. I mean, that's honestly what the mysticism is for. It's just a transition point between uh, the ordinary historical Christian society and this kind of state they want to take the culture to, which is easier to control. And it's really that, it's no, there's nothing more complicated about it than that. But anyway, so um, so that Montague Norman, uh, he organizes uh, Brown Brothers Harriman. Brown Brothers was his family's investment bank that they owned. He was the head of the Bank of England at the time. And um, he merged it. They wanted to move money toward Hitler, but they he, he wanted it to be harder to understand and trace. And so that you created Brown Brothers Harriman. And this is where you get all these ideas about uh, Prescott Bush and the Bush family being Nazis. Mm -hmm. Because um, Harriman Brothers was completely staffed with Skull and Bones members, Skull and Bones being the Yale Secret Society, which is a part of Freemasonry. Um, and all of these individuals were then taken into Brown, into Harriman Brothers, who then becomes part of Brown Brothers Harriman's, which then arranged um, with Schott, this Freemason uh, German uh, banker to fund the Nazi party, to develop the, uh, the German economy, to create the war machine with which um, the nation committed suicide, apparently, you know, later on. But all of this is coming again, under the auspice of the Theosophical Society and Blavatsky. And now it's time to produce Hitler. Um, Blavatsky has talked about a world leader, a kind of messianic character. She has a term for it. Hitler is seen as this by these groups which are coming from Blavatsky. I mean, you have Sabatendorf and uh, uh, Dietrich Erkhart, you know, and these are members of this, of this Theosophical Society which are bringing national socialism, which has come into Germany through the Bellamy brothers who are followers of Blavatsky in the 1890s, they bring it in. 
And so now you get all of these kind of quasi racial, mystical, but also very kind of structured uh, militaristic culture things that are, if you look at, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the stuff that's being talked about by the precursor to the Nazi party, um, you know, they are all just in, in this, this weird combination of mysticism, national socialism, which is racially, um, you know, identified. And they're, they're, what they're trying to do is to try, I mean, in my opinion, they're trying to organize Central Europe as, for a racial slaughter. They're just bringing them all in there, um, all of the, you know, the Aryan individuals, you know, and, and then giving them an insane leader to set them up for being exterminated. I mean, I know this is hard to swallow, but if you look at how specifically the Theosophical Society was related to all of these disparate events, to the swastika, the national socialism, the the, the flag salute, the money, and then all the individuals. And then finally you end up with um, Eckhart, who is really Hitler's handler. I mean, you can easily call him that. He, he bought him the trench coat, supposedly. He showed him how to talk and you know, how to dress crowds. He helps him with all of this. And, um, and when he dies on his deathbed, he says, you know, um, don't cry for me because I'm the one that really taught Hitler Hitler is dancing to my tune. I'm the one who showed him. I brought uh, Blavatsky to him, The Secret Doctrine, you know, this book, which is the kind of the precursor of the mysticism of the Nazi party. Um, and so, you know, then, then you have this, this situation um, wherein Hitler, you know, wages total war. Completely irrational idea. Um, total war and talks about how, you know, if, if we can't win, we deserve to die as a race, you know. Again, there's these bizarre justifications for genocide. And of course, he's opposed to uh, Churchill, who's exactly the same philosophy. Total war, kill them all, firebomb all the cities, bring the, ci the citizens into the cities where we can get at them better with the firebombs. Um, so, Europe is being exterminated, right? Both by, by you have Hitler on one side and, um, and on the other you have um, uh, Churchill. Um, I just happen to have a little kind of a, a visualization, which you really can't see, unfortunately, but this is a Bolshevik note. I'm not sure what year, but it would have been, you know, oh, like, 1930 or something but it's fairly early and uh you can't really see it but maybe you can actually it has a swastika that's hidden in the middle in the center of it can you see it uh, yeah it's hard to see not quite but uh, yeah you can't. anyway it's there i'd love to get I can a, a, a picture of that or a scan or if you tell me where i can find it i can i can um well the heart you can go online and and they're not that rare um, but it has a the right angled swastika and these notes were issued um, before the, the the Nazi party. This was this this note was issued in 1917. Wow, that's 1917, and the swastika is right uh, here, right there. It's right in the center, and it's actually kind of a kind of obscured. It's hard to see. They've made it so you have to kind of 
right. fiddle with the thing to get the light right. But it is there. The the swastika was the um, premier symbol of what's called operational Freemasonry. Um, you know, like uh, Rudyard Kipling and the Duke of Kent had it as their kind of personal icons. So it's sort of a brand uh, of the of this Nazi party as being under the control of Freemasonry. I mean, that would be my take. And the incredible thing is that um, the Quattro Coronati, um, as it was founded, I mean, it had the uh, Zionists like... Um, uh, what is his name? Um, he was a former London chief of police. He'd handled the whole Jack the Ripper. Forget his name. But anyway, I mean, Palmerston um, really began what becomes modern Zionism. I mean, a lot of people think that it um, comes out of the you know rabbinical tradition or something. And I'm sure there was zionism inside of the world of the rabbis but there was also what's called um secular uh, reform judaism which was much more popular um and it was uh, it it was actually taking the religion in a different direction completely but freemasonry had this idea of uh, uh you know a kind of a, a zionist and racially separate nation and so in 1840 uh palmerson who was the premier of, of England, uh, or Shaftesbury, his father-in-law, one of the two, they, they, they started making this position that now is the time for the Jews to return to their homeland. Right. And this was an amazing, um, you know, kind of declaration. Um, I was completely aware of this. I, I found out about this through uh, Anthony Chaikin. He was one of the LaRouche scholars and he's just an absolutely brilliant researcher. He and Jeffrey Steinberg, I believe his name is, they're two Jewish scholars who worked for LaRouche and they had uncovered all of this. Uh, and that's how I actually came through their work. They, they uh, um, Chaikin, Tony Chaikin had, had done lectures on Palmerston and saying, look, I mean, this is, this is where Zionism come from. Um, this is the Zionism that actually produces the nation. It isn't an abstract, religious position. I mean, this is the political force, uh, historical force that creates uh, the state of Israel. And so around 1840, 1850, they started um, the process. And they what they did was, uh, Charles Warren is the name of the individual who uh, was the Freemason and uh, that I was referring to as who was one of the founders of the Quattro Coronati. And what they did was, is they through Freemasonry, through the funding of Freemasonry and the British royal family, they set up all this money and they started doing surveys of the Holy Land. Mm. And these were the surveys that were then ultimately used to establish the state of Israel with. They, they kind of got a understanding because, you know, they had no, they didn't even know where, where it was really. I mean, they kind of knew where Jerusalem was, but the idea of like how they could set up a nation. So they did all of these archaeologic surveys um, they they bought the uh, Suez Canal and then they brought in British soldiers into Syria. Um, and so in other words, they started to begin to have sort of more uh, Masonic control of the region. Uh, this was in the 19th, uh, 20th, yeah, early, late part of the 19th century. And so um, so you, you then you then transitioned to Theodore Herzl 
who is literally an employee of these people. I mean, he he actually, you know, he, he claims that he sort of his his Zionism, it's he doesn't really give a good explanation as to where it comes from. I mean, he, he kind of I think he gives a position. Well, it's just sort of like Jewish, you know, uh, patriotism uh, um, and racial pride, you know, these things. But actually, he ha he had come from this group. He, he had as uh, as his uh, nickname uh, during college, college years was Tankred, which is a character of Disraeli, um, who was one of the Masonic circle in Britain. So you can see that he was he was absolutely already when he you know he didn't have a midlife you know like epiphany and then transition he was doing this from the very beginning of his of his life and the, even his speeches were coming through Disraeli so he was sort of an artificial character but he was very instrumental to try to you know 1870 1880 to get Zionism going and they were opposed and again this has sort of been swept away from history by a reform Judaism, um, which had taken the position that, um, as opposed to Zionism, and they were saying that they wanted to transition Judaism into a, a religion that would just be a light for all humanity. And they were actually writing this. They were actually, it was actually part of the religion was the idea that we would take Judaism to everyone and it would just be for everyone. It wouldn't be a xenophobic, racially divisive uh religiously divisive religion that they would they would they would transition from that into a much broader spiritual and intellectual position and um and that that movement then had to actually be um attacked and and swept aside by uh, by the british masonic organizers they had to hire people to go to the different synagogues and proselytize for zionism because uh, the uh, the British um, Freemason position that now is the time for the Jews to return just made no sense to the European um, Jews. I mean, they, there was uh, Tony Chaikin made this. He said this was news to the Jews that this was the time for uh, us to return. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, it, it, it then the um, you know you have the catastrophic events of World War II and from which uh, the nation of Israel is is uh, is created. And I would just suggest that this would be a really good area for um, a full-blooded historical investigation as to how these two entities really came into existence, how how uh, the political force of Zionism uh, to found this nation of Israel and the, uh, the, the Masonic influence in back of the Nazi party, because the, you know, the, the, the really horrible possibility that comes out of the analysis is that Europe was set up as a chessboard and basically maneuvered into this situation where, you know, you have the destruction of the Gentiles on one side and, the foundation of Israel on the other, because, you know, with the with the Holocaust, you were able to get a lot of immigration to Israel that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And also you had a, uh, a justification, a political justification um, to, uh, you know, to genocide the Palestinians, basically. So this would be, you know, the the analysis and the, the 
points I brought out would just be a great starting place for, uh, you know, real scholarship. I've tried to encourage others, you know, to go into this. Um, you know, I, I lay out these facts in, uh, in my next books, but uh, obviously, you know, just, you know, I don't have enough time and energy to do all of this work. And I was hope I'm hope hoping that more people will start to pick up the idea of, of the, um, the Quattro Coronati's role in both the foundation of Israel and the creation of the Nazi party, because both of those phenomena are, are very much um, beholden to, to these, to this, the British Freemason lodges. And, and yet this isn't something that, uh, you know, we, we don't get this history, you know, I and mean, we have to dig through all of these research materials to find any of this stuff. So I, I'm sorry to be long-winded about this, no, but this I, is it is important, you know, to to get this this idea the, these ideas out and to encourage, um, you know, academics and scholars and independent internet people. You know, it's um, you know, it's a very it's a very difficult kind of uh, subject to go into. It's hard to to go into it without creating, you know, I mean, because for, first of all, you have the charge of anti-Semitism is hurled. Uh, almost immediately at people wanting to, to talk about this in an objective way. Um, but beyond that, there are a lot of like far right, alt-right people who, who are, they take the position that, you know, that Hitler was good. You know, the, they're like this kind of a kind of fringe kind of um, political, and they are very uh, opposed to these ideas, you know? So um, you, you get to a position where you kind of piss everybody off, you know, but it's that, that just shows you you're on maybe the right track because uh, this stuff has been hidden. And, uh, um, and, and, you know, the, the kind of the broad outline that, uh, that I have, I have presented. And, and I think that there isn't enough and I don't have enough. Um, oh, I don't have enough like research power uh, uh, to really, you know, be conclusive about this. But man, it sure looks suspicious to me. And I would sure like to see this as an area of, sub of research taken up by, um, by schools, by institutions, you know, I mean, this is, you know, there's all of these New Testament scholars, there's all of these kind of uh, historical departments, you know, and universities, what the heck are they doing? Right. Nothing. You know, they're just regurgitating ideas, which are now that the independent media is coming to existence are, are really, um, you know, being exposed as, as not as, not as solid as we were led to believe. And so here, this is an area I hope that others um, will, will take it up and try to follow um, Blavatsky and that strand of mysticism into the creation of Hitler and also the British Freemasonry, the Quattro Coronati group, into the uh, the the what becomes the political force to create Israel, because those two strands, uh, in my opinion, are the the ones that really need to be um, to be understood. And I'd also like someone to find out why did the Bolsheviks use the swastika hmm. in 1917 as their occulted symbol? That would be another. Uh, I have, I have one idea about that. Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, before I could really express 
my perspective on why they chose the swastika, I have to do a little bit of preliminary uh, explanation as to what Freemasonry is from my experience and what I've heard other Masons describe it as. So this is a quote I've heard recited from many Masons. It is, Freemasonry is a peculiar system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. So the word peculiar here, I've, I've laid out some of its uh, philological foundations because I think they do relate to the ultimate nature of the order, for better or worse. So peculiar, you can see here, it also relates to not only to uncommon or odd or, or something that is a particular group is known for, but also for money. And when you look at the connection between the Knights Templar and central banking, the central bankers have, for the most part, taken over the world and conspired using secret societies as a means to as Joe has shown, finance groups like the Theosophist who can socially engineer culture to their ends. And they feel that they are exempt from karma because they lay it out symbolically to us. And this is how they treat their fellow Masons also. If you're a Mason who's uh, an injured apprentice or a fellow craft or a master Mason, you're a portico Mason. You're only in the lower tier. And because of this, you're being deliberately misled. And Albert Pike's quote, attest to that. He states, The blue degrees are but the outer court or portico of the temple. Part of the symbols are displayed there to the initiate, but he is intentionally misled by false interpretations. It is not intended that he shall understand them, but it is intended that he shall imagine he understands them. Their true explication is reserved for adepts, the princes of masonry. The whole body of the royal and sacerdotal art was hidden so carefully centuries since in the high degrees as that it is even yet impossible to solve many of the enigmas they contain it is well enough for the mass of those called masons to imagine that all is contained in the blue degrees and whose attempts to undeceive them will labor in vain and without any true reward violate his obligations as an adept masonry is the veritable sphinx buried to the head in the sands heaped round it by ages albert pike 33rd degree, Sovereign Grand Commander of the Supreme Council, Scottish Rite, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. All right, next we've got the image of the Master of the Second Veil, which for those listening at home, you have a gentleman with his feet splayed, shoving his hand, his right hand, into his jacket, obscuring it. So it's the hidden hand he's performing. And this is part of the Royal Arch Masonic Degrees. Then you've got Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and Karl Marx all performing this gesture, showing their level of initiation as Royal Arch Freemasons. Uh, the problem is they're all mass-murdering psychopaths associated with the worst crimes of the last century and a half plus against humanity. You've got the father of communism. You've got the architects of the Russian Revolution, World War One, and continue on to World War II. Uh, probably hundreds of millions of deaths collectively can be attributed to these Freemasons. Now, I don't know of any Freemasonic order has ever denounced or disowned them or explained this. Uh, maybe I, I'm lacking critical information. If you're a Mason or someone who has that knowledge, send it forward. I'd be happy to publish it. I'm just trying to get to the truth here. That's why I call it Gnosis because I want people to discover the true nature of our reality together through open inquiry and dialogue and discourse. 
and debate if it's called for. For those listening at home, if you really want to understand this on a deeper level, you need to see the slides, but I'm going to do my best to try to illustrate what they are verbally. Okay, so next slide, we've got William Blake's uh, depiction of the great architect of the universe, or the Demiurge. He's setting his compass upon the great deep, and this is the cosmology of Freemasonry where the great architect creates reality by spinning it into existence and it makes sense on so many levels because from the submicroscopic to the supergalactic everything rotates around everything else everything's whirling and uh, when you think of Yahweh as a storm god perhaps that's another interpretation as it goes with symbolism it's it's open and it continues to accrete different uh, explanations for all of these symbols and they may all very well be true on some level but it also allows for a culting meaning and that's where we're going to go with the next image, which is the back of the $1 bill. You've got the all-seeing eye, the eye of providence, floating up above the rest of the, I guess, mundane or profane or lower levels of initiate, non-initiate people. And Anuit Coeptus means he favors our undertaking, referring to their version of God. And then Novus Ordo Seclorum, meaning new order of the ages. Next slide here, we've got a pink line superimposed upon the angle of the Great Pyramid, or the pyramid for this illustration, and it's 23.4 degrees. Uh, you can look to the right, and you'll see that this happens to be the exact same angle that our Earth's axis is tilted over from 90 degrees relative to the plane of the ecliptic. Interestingly enough, the complementary angle to this axial tilt is 66.6 degrees so you take 90 degrees you subtract 23.4 you get 66.6 so the four seasons as we know them are a result of this axial tilt and this has uh, import for the dying god cults of the mystery school religions all over the globe uh, they follow the seasons osiris christ Attis, adonis abraxas you name it they're all defining themselves according to nature's process through the ages or through the years so uh, also what you're going to see is that the sun earth moon system is defined by this tilt and that's where you can look at the holy trinity as being a relationship to the mathematics of the universe and to those constants being precise enough to provide life as we know it the space to unfold Okay, the next slide, we've got a little piece of scripture from the book of Revelation. It says, Here is wisdom. Let him who hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man, six hundred three score and six. That's from Revelations 13, 18. Then we've got a few numbers that you can crunch along at home if you like. So we've got 29.78 kilometers per second. That's the given speed from the NASA Earth Data Fact Sheet from the Goddard Space Flight Center. You can look that up to confirm independently. Converting that into miles, or excuse me, yes, into miles per second, it's 18.50 miles per second. To convert that into minutes, we multiply by 60. That gives us 1,110 miles per minute. And multiplying by 60 again to get hours, we get 66,600 miles per hour. So that's the second 666 reference that is embedded in our sun earth moon solar system uh, parameters that is auspicious and is related to of course 
the Bible in different ways would say, for instance, King Solomon is given 666 talents of gold. And of course, you have the association with the devil and Satan, that being an unholy number. But this is all Kabbalah. This is all a way of kind of compressing and providing a condensed uh, associative train of information that can be unpacked according to one's level of understanding and provide new insight. That's not inherently evil, but it is a method of obscuring different interpretations of information. So uh, a Christian literalist would look at this and maybe shriek in horror because they've been programmed to, whereas, say, a Kabbalist or a Freemason esotericist would say, well, this is related to the, uh, the blueprints of the heavens that the great architect laid out. And they're both true in some regard. And that's where it gets tricky. Also, if you take the number 13, 18, multiply 13 by 18, you get 234. If you reverse or mirror that number and add it to itself, you get 666 as well. So that's kind of a wink and a nod from the Kabbalist who originally uh, designed the scripture. Uh, if you listen to Joe Atwell, if you follow his work, most likely it was Domitian Caesar. And that's, if you want to dig that up yourself, go go read Shakespeare's Secret Messiah. Uh, you, pour, you don't have to, but I suggest reading Caesar's Messiah first. Uh, then you'll get the most out of it, but you can skip right ahead if you want. Okay, this next slide, uh, a lot of information here, a little more detail. So, Anuak Coeptus, it means providence favors our undertakings, or providence has favored our undertakings. Uh, but what is providence? Providence has a lot of meanings. And also we see uh, deeper information about the origin of the phrase Novus Ordo Seclorum. It says here, the phrase is a reference to the fourth Ecologue of Virgil, which contains a passage that reads, and so I'm going to skip right ahead to the third line. It says, now justice returns, honored rules return, or return of Saturn's reign. So Saturn, or Satan, or El, as he's also known, as well as you know so many other multiplicitous interpretations of this storm god uh, character from the Middle East is potentially who's being described here as providence. So they're the ones favoring this undertaking of Freemasons to create the new Atlantis, the new Jerusalem, America. Uh, you can see some of the different names for Anu are the Sky Father, King of the Gods, Lord of the Constellations, Allah, El, Il, Elu, God, Yahweh, Aeon, Uranus, Zeus, Calus, Sol, Jupiter, Satan, Lucifer, and Sanjaza, God of the sky and heaven. Uh, Titleist, the one true God, the Monad, Parabamon. So I think that's at least 10 different names for this deity. Uh, so each of those could, in fact, be who they're referring to. And that type of syncretic organization allows for a lot of loose interpretation because each of those could have its own respective belief system that they could cite. And if you didn't know that there were different interpretations or different names for the same God, you'd be totally blind to what was being espoused as to their nature. And if it's Satan and Yahweh all at once, it lends credence to the Gnostic belief that the Demiurge was in fact an evil God and that this realm was ruled over by said evil force. 
Uh, I'm not saying I align with that view in particular, but the battle of good and evil has raged on in the time of man, as far as I know, since day one, since our inception. Okay. Um, so, altogether, Anuit Coeptus Novus Ordo Seclorum means providence favors our undertaking for the new order of the ages. Uh, what is the new order of the ages? Well, this is where we get into astrology and astronomy, as well as deep time, uh, larger epochs of time that have played out and different perspectives as to how they relate to evolutionary cycles of man and our ultimate destiny, at least in regards to what Freemasons believe about the nature of reality and their place in it and what their objectives are on different levels. Next, we see the Ritual of the Operative Freemasons by Thomas Carr, MD, PM, so the medical doctor, past master perhaps. Uh, MD may have a Masonic definition that I'm not aware of. It says here, the swastika is probably the most ancient and most widely distributed symbol that has ever existed. The author in another paper has traced it back to the great yellow or Turanian race and shows reasons to believe its distribution took place in the Bronze Age and that it was originally the emblem of the rotation of the seven stars of the great bear around the polar star and was the symbol of the most high God who there reigned and ruled the visible universe. Among operative Freemasons, the seventh degree candidate is taken into a vault under the Grand Lodge room and from the darkness looks up to the center of its roof and there sees a large letter G from which a plumb line is suspended, which hangs down into the chamber in which he is placed. He is told that this plumb line comes down from the pole star and that the swastika is its symbol. The swastika is depicted on the sacred pedestal in front of him. When an operative lodge is opened in the seventh degree, each of the grandmasters puts his square together with the square and the volume of the sacred law in such a way as to form a swastika, which is a much venerated symbol among all operative Freemasons and is held to represent El Shaddai or the Most High himself. These secrets of the masters have been described by me in another paper and they still further support the opinion I have endeavored to maintain in these articles. One of the most remarkable facts about these secrets is that the seventh degree operative Freemasons are taught that the polar star is the real seat of power of the Most High and that the swastika is his symbol and the emblem of the pole star. This is esoteric teaching which has long perished in Europe and is now only to be found in India, China, Japan, and in the valley of the Euphrates. It is ridiculous to pretend that a body holding such doctrines can have emanated from a modern society founded in 1717 or thereabouts. Okay, there's a, there's a couple different ways to look at the Little and Big Dipper. Uh, you can see in the bottom left corner here, if you're viewing on YouTube or BitChute, etc., the Big Dipper rotating around Polaris in our current epoch. So it looks like a swastika rotating. Uh, I'm going to show some video here in just a moment, uh, emphasizing that fact from Stellarium. You can tell the time of day according to the movement of the Big Dipper. You can tell the season you're in, which is important for agricultural purposes and would have helped our ancestors survive, knowing when exactly when to reap and when to sow. Uh, you can see in the center panel here the a Chinese equivalent of the Big Dipper mixed with the Little Dipper and it forms a swastika uh, when defining the four times of day, the four main components of the day, the four 
seasons of the year and then extending into the great year cycle, the four beasts of the apocalypse. Okay, we've got a time-lapse photo showing the rotation of the earth and what it does is it gives also the movement of the heavens from our perspective. Uh, you can see the, the focal point Polaris here is where the plumb bob would be hanging from in the lodge representing north and of course our alignment to the heavens is this is defined this way and in the right panel you've got the milky way galaxy spiraling out swastika like as well so fractally uh almost like russian dolls nested within each other you've got the same rotational form playing out in different dimensions uh, go to stellarium.org, download this program if you want to learn astronomy on the cheap. Notice Polaris, notice Ursa Minor whirling about it. Here's the chariot wheel rotation. This is the pivot of heaven animated. Uh, of course, it's like much faster than you would see with the naked eye, but this is to emphasize this motion. And you can also see the Big Dipper swirling around. So the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper both create the swastika associated with the North Pole for this epoch that we're currently in. So when they say the new order of the ages regarding stellar magic, it seems they perform ceremonies in tune with the larger heavens as a way to invoke their will. So when it says the eye of providence or eye of Horus or providence favors our undertaking, this is what they're referring to. And if you think in terms of the great year cycle, the precession of the equinoxes establishes different ages. And a lot of times events are done to culminate with those larger motions of the heavens and the transference from one age to the next. Okay, speaking of the great ages, here are a few graphics I've created for cosmic patterns and cycles of catastrophe as well as uh, Magicians of the Gods by Graham Hancock. Uh, if you look to the left, you've got an overhead view of the circumpolar stars, which also define the ages. As the Earth rotates and orbits around the Sun, it precesses or spins like a gyroscope. Alright, this is a video that you can find on YouTube called Precession of the Earth by Steven Sanders. It's phenomenal. I think it's a great, quick way to get to grips with this celestial mechanic, this motion, and how it relates to the North Pole. And so remember, this is the God of Time manifest in understandable astronomical motion and this is what gives us the cycle of the ages different gods are worshipped in different periods of the ages by different religions and you can make the argument that most religion is founded in a basis of astrotheology so it would be really critical to make sense of it all beyond say just metaphor you see as the earth precesses the age we're in shifts one degree every 72 years on average so one age takes about 2,160 years to traverse, and it takes 25,920 years to make a full circuit or full cycle. These stellar magicians apparently linked the 9-11 false flag attack to this cycle. And in doing so, they were carrying out a form of black stellar magic that was also imbued with philemic or OTO, Golden Dawn, Crowleyite style uh, magical practices. Thankfully, uh, we, it seems the New World Order is failing now and they're being exposed, but they're still coming for us. They're still trying to destroy us with the Fovid monstrosity. 
and uh, so many other ways they're trying to get us to sacrifice unto Molech, whom they've essentially sold their souls to for worldly power. So there is some real power in, in this belief, at least, if nothing else. And uh, I've got an article on the website, 9-11 Gnosis and Cycles of Catastrophe. Uh, check that out if you want to get a little bit more insight into that. And also check out the book by S.K. Bain, the most dangerous book in the world, 9-11 is Mass Ritual. To get a really thorough breakdown about the philemic connection to all of this. And if you look at the Podesta emails, you see Hillary Clinton and others using the terminology philema, looking for philema favors, and of course they're associated with sex trafficking which is the abusive black magic of the Skull and Bone Society and other negative mystery school religions. So I don't see Freemasonry as being exempt from that. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert in black magic, but I'm just here looking for the truth, so I thought I'd share that. All right, back to the previous graphic. Uh, just to meditate on this, get... Get familiar with the motion, recognize the pattern of the heavens, how it relates to sacred geometry, how it relates to Freemasonic practices. The lodge is seen as a microcosm of the universe, the solar system, the earth. Uh, it appears that there's really not much difference between initiation into witchcraft and in the Freemasonry. You were met uh, by the uh, high priest or high priestess uh, at that time usually with a sword uh, to your chest. When I went to enter the lodge, a sharp object was put to my left breast. And I was warned that should I reveal any of the secrets of Freemasonry uh, to know what to expect. When you're presented before the high priest, a sword is held against your chest and you actually take a blood oath, promising to remain faithful to the secrets of witchcraft. Well, when you are in the room, this um, blindfold is taken away from you and this is a time when they say that you're coming from darkness into light. During the initiation ceremony, the, the initiate is led by the lieutenant of the uh, high priest and is challenged at the edge of the circle by someone saying, who goes there? And the answer is, one from the world of darkness. In masonry, the prayers are ended with, so mote it be. Oh, and one of the other aspects of, uh, or distinctives of the craft was that we would always end any spell or ritual where we released the power, this is where the power was released, with the word, so mote it be. I was intrigued to discover that witchcraft and Freemasonry had so much in common. However, in white witchcraft, followers dismiss the biblical concept of Lucifer. Freemasonry goes so far as to actually call Lucifer God. In the words of sovereign pontiff of universal Freemasonry, Albert Pike, yes, Lucifer is God, and unfortunately, Adonai, the Hebrew god of the Bible, is also God. And the true and pure philosophical religion is the belief in Lucifer, the equal of Adonai, that Lucifer, God of light and God of good, is struggling for humanity against Adonai, the God of darkness and evil. Listen to the words of 33rd degree Mason Manley P. Hall. When the Mason learns that the key to the warrior on the block is the proper application of the dynamo living power, he has learned the mystery of his craft. The seething energies of Lucifer are in his hands, and before he may step onward and upward, he must prove his ability to properly apply this energy. Of the literally millions of Masons worldwide, 
how many of them are actually aware of the true meaning of the Masonic symbols? The answer is very few. Since most Masons never go past the third degree of the Blue Lodge, the, the rank of Master Mason, the vast majority of them never discover what they're involved in. And they never will discover what Freemasonry is all about unless they venture into the higher levels of the Scottish Rite or the York Rite. In fact, they're not just ignorant, they're deliberately misled by their superiors in the Lodge. In the words of Masonry's own authority, Albert Pike, the blue degrees are but the outer court or portico of the temple. Part of the symbols are displayed there to the initiate, but he is intentionally misled by false interpretations. It is not intended that he shall understand them, but it is intended that he shall imagine that he understands them. All right, there you go. So the connection between witchcraft and the craft of Freemasonry is laid bare in regards to their initiatory rituals and what you can expect if you violate these sworn oaths. And there are multiple examples of those oaths being taken very seriously and people involved being murdered, especially when it comes to the OTO and Golden Dawn and offshoots of Freemasonry linked to Aleister Crowley which is linked to British secret intelligence, MI6, MI5, and so forth. So be careful out there. Uh, everything that glitters ain't gold. Now, this next slide, you are going to get another perspective on the swastika symbolism as it relates to comets. And comets are nature's thunderbolt, or the Vajra, the uh, destructive emblem of the gods in Tibetan and Hindu metaphysics so here you can see in the bottom left corner uh, this is from the second century Han Dynasty it's a, an astrology manuscript ink on silk and in the far left you see a very obvious swastika and then you see a different different examples of how the swastika can manifest as viewed by humans uh, witnessing them in the heavens and they can be portentous of uh, feast or famine they can lead to uh, the celestial agriculture being beneficent and seeing increased uh, reaping of the harvest, especially as it relates to grapes and wine. Uh, it can also be a portent of absolute destruction, the overturning of civilization and revolution. So there's a lot going on with these mystery schools in terms of their symbology and their according of the history of man that's been suppressed or occulted. Uh, you can see the Tula Society emblem uh, with sword superimposed by the swastika on top of it. So it's different ways of viewing the comet. And in the upper right, you've got someone did an artistic rendition of what a comet might look like. That's actually the Pan Stars comet. And then they've added the swirl. So imagine that spinning overhead maybe for a year plus, you know, in, and even visible in the daylight. It's when you think of the, the cloud of smoke being visible in the heavens that the Israelites were supposed to be following. Uh, this is another potential symbolic representation of scripture that could be de-occulted. All right, so uh, just different ways to look at this phenomenon. And of course, comets and asteroids are nature's warheads. Uh, look what happened to the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. They were absolutely raised from the pages of history in the Yucatan Peninsula. And there's the only thing really preventing this from happening again is our capacity to predict and map those objects in space as well as 
maybe not pissing off the creator god by allowing things like oh massive child sacrifice to extract adrenochrome which we are literally seeing and for those with the eyes to see and the ears to hear uh, don't let someone else dismiss these as half-baked conspiracies do your own research i'd be happy to point out resources uh, especially if they happen to be a mason uh, they're they're compromised they can't speak freely on these issues and if it doesn't pad their bottom line chances are they've already uh, dismissed this out of hand because that's the type of person they are you know if it comes to children and people being protected from satanist uh, and bloodletting rituals that you know link to their own secret orders uh, they just prefer you not even bring it up and they're going to dismiss you as some type of conspiracy theorist. And it's it's completely contradictory to who they present themselves to be. These are false idols and prophets who are more interested in profit than telling the truth. And uh, like any narcissist, they're, they're liable to project their own sins onto their victims. So I can't take them seriously. And we all know who we're talking about here. Uh, they can continue to send cease and desist orders if that makes them feel powerful or important or special. But there's there's no legal out for compromising your integrity. All right, so there you have it. There's the nitty-gritty on why they have sworn oaths of secrecy. Because when people realize that you're doing black magic, they're going to see you as an enemy and not someone they want to deal with. You will be uh, seen as an outcast. And so the, the hidden hand... Uh, Moses, when he supposedly meets Yahweh on the mountain, Yahweh convinces him to shove his hand inside of his jacket, and he says, look, it's leprous as snow. Well, this is more mystification. Leprous can also mean scaly, so I think in a way it's, it's again, like peculiar. There's multiple interpretations, but one of them, rather than just being white as snow, it's also describing you're becoming sinister and snake-like by maintaining a false front, by holding... Uh, within you dichotomous positions and cognitive dissonance and embracing sociopathy. You're being dishonest. And I, I don't think Yahweh is God. Why does God need babies' foreskins? Why does God need men to castrate themselves symbolically through uh, circumcision? Why would God need any of that? It makes no sense. It's a witch's covenant with some elemental force. And Yahweh is the four elements. So again, it's a it's a pagan system. Yud Hey Vod Hey. That's fire, air, earth, and water. And this is a way that they can use the Bible to obscure their true intentions and to keep the people in the lower levels befuddled and hoodwinked. And it's time we grow up as Americans, understand that Kennedy was trying to warn us and that these people are murderous savages and that no Mason should be trusted. They should not be allowed to hold political office. I don't care that George Washington was a Mason. Uh, what it's morphed into, if it was in fact good at that time, is nothing to be proud of, and we need to fling open the doors. Notice that Masonic temples do not have windows. There's a reason for that, guys. It's black magic. It's witchcraft. They presume that they have the right to do this, and their so-called libertarian values are really just saying allow me to live as I want without any moral compass, even though they also project that they are moral individuals. It's, it's all a fucking sham, all right? 
that's some of my perspective. Now we've got a graphic here uh, that I made based on Randall Carlson's research as a catastrophist geologist. And these are events in the time of man, anatomically modern man in the last 144,000 plus years that were each so destructive that they would be able to reboot civilization as we know it. Uh, and I think there's, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 here that coincide with sacred geometrical templates of time that we see in the great year cycle. And if you want to know more about that, watch the film I made, Cosmic Patterns and Cycles of Catastrophe, uh, based on Randall's research. Uh, it, it's all there, and uh, it's, on my, it's on YouTube. Uh, if you don't have the money and you want to see the full four hours, I'll give you the copy. Don't worry about it. Uh, and you can donate if you want, but you don't have to. So anyway, uh, so these are the catastrophes in the time of man, the tempo of global change. Anatomically modern man means that our ancestors were had the same cranial capacity. They're likely to be just as intelligent as we are. So what gives? Why were they not as advanced technically? Well, like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill, we've been rebooted time and again, where secret society and other cults lose the plot is that they do not own that moral degeneracy has a consequence in this world and that we will not be allowed to evolve. That's how I view it. I don't think it's just happenstance. It could force us to evolve and get into space, yes, but if we, <laughs> it's like moving to a new town. If you haven't changed, you're just in a new environment. You haven't, you haven't become a better person and allowing secret societies to dominate us to farm people for organs, Falun Gong, to see Satanism and communism still um, at the door, as we see here with the infiltration of America by the deep state, which is, you know, the birth, the, the, the afterbirth of the, the CIA, the OSS, and all of these conspiring families that are all linked to black magic. You know, Fritz Springmeier's Illuminati bloodlines, that's real. The Merovingians, absolutely. This, this whole constructed mythosphere where they control one-third of the population plus with the monotheistic religions, and then the rest are kind of left to fend for themselves. We, we're at an age where we're going to have to develop new means and methods of understanding ourselves and God in our place in the universe beyond recapitulating the old template. And uh, that's a whole nother, that's multiple volumes of podcasts and books that discussing what's gone on there. But here's the chart. It is in the film. You can see this. Uh, I've put all this out in the public domain. So for those who want to know, it's there. Okay, uh, this is a graphic I did, uh, an infographic. I took the linear chart and I made it cyclical. I made it circular. So from the inside out, radiating outward, you have great year cycles. And then I've plotted those catastrophic events and labeled it as such. So again, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to uh, find a monitor to really get to grips with this. But sure enough, the Templar cross, the Maltese cross, the four beasts of the apocalypse, they are here. And sure enough, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different events coinciding with that. And this is a result of interactions in space. This is probably also the result of. God knows what. I mean, it could be that mankind has been fallen for a very long time and that we are still Sisyphus-like pushing that boulder up the hill. We're still like Prometheus strapped to the rock and we're having our liver pecked out by Zeus. 
Yahweh and uh, continues to regenerate. And until Hercules, Hercules shows up, which is maybe our higher self that's ascended to a higher dimension, we're going to have... So again, uh, if you see the whole film, you'll see the connection to Freemasonry and sacred geometry. And uh, this is hopefully something that we could with with knowledge with understanding overcome in time so the bolsheviks they took something like because they were inspired by theosophy uh or rather excuse me the tula society and others because they were inspired by theosophy they may have been aware of this cyclical pattern of destruction and they may have their own belief that they could create an arc for themselves, avoid catastrophe, return to the Earth's surface to rule again, as they did in the, the, the Golden Age, as they see it, or the time of Saturn. And if you look into Saturnalia and how uh, their world is comprised, it makes sense when you read a book like Brave New World from Aldous Huxley that these ancient bloodlines, that's what they really want more than anything. They, they feel that they were taken away from paradise where they could live like gods and do whatever they wanted to anyone else forever, indefinitely. And humanity has by and by been willing to fight and die to live free, and that's not something that they appreciate very much. And so they've, they've worked out incredible techniques of sophistry and manipulation to get us to kill ourselves and perpetuate patterns of abuse going back to the Old Testament and beyond. So uh, this this here you're seeing these are each events that you know the world would be completely destroyed, made anew, and I uh, I hope that the works like Joe, Joseph Atwell's Secret Language of the Oligarchs help people understand how not to be gaslit and abused by these narcissists because and these archons because they need our consent to go along. The minute you refuse, the minute you abide by principles that are aligned with the golden rule is the minute they have no power over you and yes you may be forced to be a martyr at some point but it's better to to die fighting than to live on your knees as a slave under the yoke of these pretentious inbred uh, monsters yes they're monsters truly and they're involved in black magical practices involving incest and bestiality and you know the cake of light, you name it. There, there's the evil Eucharist. Uh, if you read Joseph Atwell's work, you'll see that they're they're cannibals, literally, and they force their their victims to become cannibals, as you saw with Titus Andronicus. And it's this back and forth between people who are power mad and truly retarded. It's nothing against people with Down syndrome; they're angels, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's humanity that's retarded. People who are of no fault to their own have different genetic uh, expression. Oftentimes, they're, they're humbling us and requiring us to become better stewards and servants to those who need our guidance and our love. And so they're our teachers. But the real retarded people are the Masons and others who so full of themselves and needing something to overcome the shame, I guess, they, they feel that they have the right to manipulate and shame others. Okay. So you can see the four beasts of the apocalypse here and the, that these events are represented in, turn, in the pattern of time in association with those four watchers or those four corners of the heavens. So I hope this lays clear a little bit of what their whole mythology is about. Yes, there's real 
impressive scientific information embedded in these scriptures. Uh, but it is something where when it's doled out only to insiders who swear blood oaths, um, I don't think that's, I think that's an obsolete mechanism at this point uh, with quantum computing being able to override our best encryption. Uh, you might as well get comfortable with the idea of not having privacy, at least at least in the public domain, but your internal privacy, your communion with the creator is your birthright. And for those who choose to seek dark power, well, perhaps you should consider that whatever is powerful enough to create this world is also powerful enough to really search your heart and know who you really are and bend reality to teach you the lessons you need on whatever level. And if you're thinking that you're exempt because you swore oaths to ancient Babylonian trickster gods, well, good luck with that. And that goes for, you know, all the secret society members out there. You're fooling yourselves. You're just mortal. You're not God. Uh, you're going to die someday. Uh, you might as well come correct before it's too late. Okay. On that note, I'm going to turn it back over to Joe. Um, in the flow of conversation previously, I wasn't able to condense, this is almost 30, 40 minutes of material into my answers. So I realized that I was going to have to take some time out and uh, edit this and, and slice it in to the conversation later. So this is not the original continuity of the discussion, but I think it does a, a good job for at least establishing some of what Freemasons believe regarding the swastika and how they... Uh, in different levels convey this information. I don't think most Masons are aware of the catastrophic aspect of it, but it is implied because they do in their symbolism have arcs and comets and this craft legend where they take refuge in the earth as Adonai, or excuse me, as Adonai or Yahweh bombards them. Uh, again, you've heard my perspective. I think it's more of a moral issue. I think if we really we're serious about creating a harmonic environment for our fellow man uh, and treating and creating a universal brotherhood, then secrecy needs to go. Secrecy is a means of uh, manipulating and get holding power over others. And this is, you can see the rats scurrying with the release of things like the Podesta emails. You can see them uh, non, none too happy that their method of control is being exposed and that their, their puppets in Hollywood are, are being exposed for what they are, which is just minions of secret society. So uh, withhold your ability to collapse the waveform from these idols. Don't worship another person. Don't put them on a pedestal. Don't celebrate anyone. Celebrate yourself and God and family. Be your own best person. Find your own way. Uh, because trust me, the, the people who try to manipulate in this world, they can only do it with your consent. And you don't need to give that to them. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I certainly know, uh, I've, I've been shown material that uh, the swastika is relating to celestial phenomena that and, and you've done a, a much clearer explanation than, I, than the stuff I was sent, but that they, they were saying that, that the swastika is, uh, is a Masonic representation of celestial events. Yes, that's what that's what it is. And Someone sent me a book that was written in 1890 on operational Freemasonry that has that statement in there, but they don't specify exactly what it's about. They just say that the swastika is our symbol. Mm -hmm. um, you know, interesting. Um, 
if you think about kind of how the modern oligarchic circle uses uh, symbols and there is this uh, historical structure, you know, that everyday per people are just suffering from and we don't really understand, but there are symbols that are visible that kind of give us a clue as to what, what is actually going on. I mean, yeah. you're talking about 911. Well, I, I relate 911 to Bab, which is a, a Hebrew expression of 911. And, and now in it's it's reversed they they don't have in tisha bob it's the um the month and the date that the month and the days it, it's it is the the expression 911 but the reason why i'm reasonably sure that it was the basis for the date is because um tisha bob is the uh, the day that um uh the temple of jerusalem was destroyed oh on two separate occasions. Um, in other words, the the um, the temple was destroyed um, yes. by the Babylonians, I believe, and then uh, again by the Romans. And uh, and Titus claimed that the temple was destroyed on this date, the same date that a thousand years earlier, um, the uh, the the first destruction of the temple. So in other words, you've had two temples. They both been destroyed, um, and it was on the same day. This Tisha B'Av. Now, that is represented as nine one one, the ninth day of the eleventh month. So, so people say, well, but wait, Joe, it's not the same thing. Well, you have to remember, if my analysis or or suspicion is correct, they're basically linking and mocking to the. Um, the typology that that the Romans used, and and so the the dating system which created the the second destruction of the temple is is completely artificial. It's typologic. They're just linking it to something in the past, and they're just doing it, you know, with kind of crude numerical symbols that they're linking together. Yeah. Well, not necessarily crude, but they're but anyway. So it's it is in the spirit sort of of the. Uh, of the Roman typology, that this reversing of it. And so you have the three buildings being destroyed, like the Trinity, the uh, Flavian Trinity, you know, representing if uh, so it when I, you know, for someone, you know, who's kind of familiar with the Caesar's Messiah analysis, you look at the uh, 911 and you go, wait a second. Um, this is seem sure seems a lot like a kind of a, a commemoration a typologic sort of re rebuttal to the destruction of the temple. You know, this is, uh, you know, just a response that that's kind of reverses everything. And um, that would be um, in keeping uh, with, for example, the reversing of uh, the gospel story that I show in the Shakespearean literature. You know, if you look at Titus Andronicus, you know, how clearly the stories in the Gospels are just being rewoven symbolically into uh, stories in which uh, the Gentile nobility suffered the same fate that the uh, the Jewish nobility did, and that is that is cryptically depicted in the Gospel, where the Hasmonean royal family is being mocked as the disciples of Jesus, and then they are unwittingly eating human flesh at the Last Supper, right? <laughs> 
so then then when you look at uh, when you look at that Titus Andronicus, you can see, wait a second, you know, this is exactly the same. In fact, um, you know, uh, I'm sometimes asked that people say, well, how could you have seen, you know, and, you know, like, did, did you spend years studying the Shakespearean literature? You know, how did, how did you ever come up with these insights? <laughs> it's really kind of funny because my entire career as a Shakespearean scholar lasted from Thursday till like Sunday. I mean, literally, I, um, I, someone asked me about Titus Andronicus, and and I was curious because Andronicus was had had sacked the temple, you know, and he 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 one of the few guys that sacked the temple, and I and I thought, well, you know, I bet you that the Shakespeare is it's some kind of symbolism, you know, about uh, the uh, maybe of, of like the flames. I'm just curious of what what's in there, you know, and. I mean, it was just absolutely apparent to me that this was a, you know, there was a send up of the, uh, of the Flavians. There's no question because like just reading into a few pages that came to the line saying, you know, um, they're talking about Titus's brother and uh, how he likes to kill flies. You know, this is a character in, in uh, Titus Andronicus. Well, I, I know a lot about the Flavian family and I knew that Domitian's, he was most famous of all things for killing flies. He loved yes. to kill flies. So uh, you can just see this is a mockery of the Flavian family. Mm. And then when you get to the end, well, then you have the crucifixion scene where, um, you know, they, they have a character who's an obvious representation of Josephus. Um, and he takes the kid down from the cross and the kid survives. So now when I read that, I go, wait a second, you know, this is, this is ludicrous. You know, this is kind of the, they're just mocking it. And then, uh, you have the Last Supper where the, the people don't know they're eating human flesh. And my point is, is that if you've like, once you've kind of decoded the Gospels, if you've read, like someone who's read Caesar Messiah, you don't have to really do a lot of work to get what the authors of the Shakespearean literature is telling you. It's really right in front of you. And, um, and so there was a group that understood the Gospels vicious typologic humor and wanted to basically re rework uh, the, the story of history, change things. And so this is why um, when you see the expression brave new world, right, and how it's used in the Tempest, um, it, it gives a pretty um, troubling connotation for then how it's used um, by, uh, by Kipling who uses it in the, in the context of, um, you know, of a genocide and uh, of, of uh, you know, of, of Huxley, who, who, even though it's more cryptic than, uh, um, than how, um, how Kipling uses it, but um, Huxley is, in fact, you know, uh, talking about a genocide, well, I mean, he's talking about a dystopic, world where you know all of the people are enslaved I mean, kind of like what you can imagine happening out of uh, the medical dictatorship that we're being you know presented with now you know where where you're taking a genetic modification i mean and and they're lying about it i mean this again it's, it's very troubling because if you think about the vaccine you go well you know it was supposed to stay in the arm at the point of injection and that's not true it goes throughout the entire body um it was supposed to be gone in a few hours, certainly a day. You know, they talked about how quickly um, RNA dissipates. Well, they, they now can show that it sticks around for at least five or six months, for God's sakes. 
Um, and um, and then of course it's safe and effective, and it neither it's neither you know the side effects through the roof. So there's just something wrong with this story. And you know if you look at this in relationship to um, you know seeing Aldous Huxley as uh, you know basically someone who's using uh, oligarchic symbolism and who's who's really describing a future dictatorship and and uh, it's very troubling you know that uh, you know he, he's he's using brave new world in the same context that Shakespeare created it with and so it's you know this is um, you know this is our world there there are you know powerful groups that that uh, uh, democracy does not interfere with you know we we don't get a chance to understand them they use actors you know like i i said that people think that there's you know if you have trump or hillary mm. you, you have the because you know the, these these individuals are selected specifically because they engender hate in in the opposite political party in other words the left hates trump the right hates hillary they are just caricatures really of humans but they engender hate the hatred is what creates the impression that democracy is real and has a meaning right. because people are, are so, you know, they, they hate Trump, they want to see him lose. And therefore there is some meaning, even though you can be absolutely certain that Hillary would have brought out the vaccines with Operation Warp Speed at just as fast as Trump did if she had been in power, right? There's no question. So, you know, my point is, is we have this illusion of democracy, but this is an illusion. They, they are able to control the process by which candidates are created. And with that power there, because they have the power of the media, with that power, they, they give us individuals who seemingly are feminists or, you know, kind of white male billionaires, whatever you have, you want to characterize Trump. But the fact is, is they are all uh, one lump of uh, oligarchic malevolence and they have the same uh, ultimately they have the exact same uh, position in terms of uh, the common people i mean which is to say uh, we are uh, cattle and uh, just we're a nuisance to be dealt with and so you know on, you know posing this now we have the spread of free information and and of skepticism and um uh it's uh, it's going to create really I mean, the next two decades will be the deciding, you know, moments of, of human experience. I mean, yeah. if you're going to have a world of any kind of uh, freedom, any kind of democratic process, um, it will have to be won um, through a struggle, you know, over the next 20 years. And uh, the beginning of the struggle has to be the information revolution, which um, can only come through the independent media. I mean, like I was saying earlier, even though I, I know sometimes, you know, people who do podcasts like, like you, it's, it's difficult, it's time consuming, there's not a lot of money in it, but you just have to remember how absolutely necessary this is. Yes. I mean, it is literally the, the future of our people. It is our future. And if you, so every time that you can participate in it every time you can you know get information out we must do it now we have to do it and so um you know hats off to you uh you, you you're doing really good work and just keep doing it um 
you know, we, they try to hold us to these standards, you know, of, uh, well, gee whiz, you know, this, this, uh, you know, there were, this was inaccurate or that was inaccurate. So what? So what? I mean, we, we have one thing, which is really all that we need and, and it cannot ever be gainsaid. And that is, we are trying to get to the truth. Yes. You see, we make mistakes in that process, but we do so because we have been lied to so often and because so many of the books are just packs of lies, you know, yes. that we have to use for resources. But because we want to get to the truth and because we really are ultimately uh, democratically spirited, they can't compete with us. All they can do is just intimidate. They can... Um, you know, challenge, like little, you know, picky any things. Look, they're, they're putting, uh, you know, a, a, a genetically modifying formula into the arms of children. I mean, their moral high ground is the sewer. We, we, don't, we don't need to waste any time with them, um, only to the extent that we need just to clarify uh, you know, for people, because we get attacked on personal levels or whatever, we have to try to get beyond that and just try to, in, to increase skepticism as rapidly as we can, because by doing so, we will start to have, um, you know, a great fraction of mankind um, focused on how the political process is false. And, and this will then produce the reaction to it of how to make it real, you see. All we want is real politics, real disclosure, people telling the truth, people telling what they are, what their real backgrounds are. You know, if, if we get to, to even if that process starts, it will collapse the oligarchic system overnight virtually because it is absolutely dependent upon lies and upon stupefaction, yes. on being bamboozled. You know, once you go, you know, I may have been bamboozled. Once that just simple concern comes into someone's mind, you can't use propaganda on them any longer, or it's much more difficult. So anyway, that's why, um, you know, just more power to you. And, and uh, um, you know, it's, um, it's good to see the independent media just have the, having this incredible, oh, uh, you know, kind of power that it's creating now. Just, it's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, um, I have to go, but I want to just offer myself at any time in the future, you want to bring me back for clarification. Yes. I mean, a lot of things that I've said, I think are, will probably be shocking to people and I, they may have questions, you know, and I would like to, you know, always want to answer any question as best I can. And um, yes. so if they have questions, I'll be happy to take them. And just to make myself available to you that in any way I can be useful, please, uh, you know, I'm, I'm available because I do think that these are important times and we should, to the extent we have the energy and capacity, we should be participating in the independent media and this stuff that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. And, and fortunately, I, fortunately, and maybe unfortunately, it's a, uh, I understand your ambivalence about putting new ideas into the, the collective because there are ramifications you can't always anticipate but if you're yeah if you're, 
if your desire is to seek the truth wholeheartedly, then I think you can't really go wrong because you're, you're going to be guided uh, towards these these revelations. And well, Cam, I just want to just interject. One thing for sure, I am a lot uh, more at peace with, with bringing out these things, even though I know that I have had a lot of influence on Christians that have, that, that have created emotional distress. Okay, I've, I know that, I accept it. But I am sure happy to have brought out these foundation pieces of skepticism yes. um, before, you know, you had COVID and before, you know, because all of these things are adding up to whatever extent, you know, this, the, my work has been part of that. I can now see how important it was. I, I remember when I brought out, like when I did the analysis, I didn't have any understanding of culture or of history or of our political process. Now I do, and I'm very happy to have done so. And I'm going to, uh, you know, get the, um, uh, I'll get you a draft fairly shortly of the one book and uh, maybe even the second one. And you can see, you know, what, what my analysis is of uh, our current situation. I really do look forward to that. And uh, I, I look forward to speaking with you again. I'm going to soak all yeah. this in. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I'll, I'll be available to you. I, like I said, I really want to help any way I can. Thank you um, so much. This is all right, Cameron. Thank you so much, brother. <laughs> Joe, you know, really power to you. you, power, power to you. And uh, you. you know, it's people your age are really the ones that are going to be uh, having to fight this struggle over the next, you know, fifty years. So, power to you, and uh, just uh, you know, whatever I can do to help, let me know. Okay. Thank you so much. I look forward to the all next right, round. God yeah, yeah. You. Talk to you soon. See all you right. Bye bye. Yeah. Peace, man. Bye, Cameron. Well, there you have it, guys. That's uh, the second episode, and I hope you learned quite a bit there. I think we uh, got an, an incredible presentation from Mr. Atwill, and uh, you know, I'm really truly thankful for scholars like him. Uh, and we've got another great investigator coming up named Robert Forte, who was uh, contemporaneous with the heaviest of hitters in the psychedelic renaissance, and he realized after being on a first-name basis with individuals, say, like Timothy Leary, uh, Richard Alpert, oh goodness, Sasha Shulgin, uh, really Frank Barron, anyone and everyone in the psychedelic movement, as well as many other CIA agents uh, in and around those times, orchestrating from behind the scenes. Uh, of course, he didn't understand that they were, were CIA agents at the time, uh, but to his credit, he's he's spoken out understanding what the, the nature pernicious nature of mk ultra was about and how they were able to hoodwink so many of us and the carnage and devastation that it's it's wrought in western society and throughout the world and so i, I really do look forward to that next next episode and and uh, if you'd like to help support the creation of that please do consider becoming an ongoing contributor subscriber uh, we're working on a membership site where we'll have uh, extended material for you, as well as a lot of other material that's been created in the past. Uh, and we would appreciate your feedback and, and your word-of-mouth support. Uh, of course, you can make a purchase in our store. All proceeds go to paying off debt I've accumulated in the creation of sacredgeometryinternational.com and the Gnosis podcast. Uh, there's a lot of topics I want to discuss. If you have suggestions for topics or guests, let us know. Uh, that's going to do it, guys. I'm ready to have this one off my plate. Uh, 
you know, a lot of really heavy material here for everyone to digest. Yes, it's going to be shadow banned. We've got 56,000 plus subscribers on the YouTube channel, and yet somehow we only get a thousand views on these videos with Joseph Atwill, who's you know world-renowned scholar. So I'm I'm calling bullshit on that. But so is the way of the world with the deep state. They don't believe in freedom of speech. They don't believe in traditional American values. They want us to be their beasts of burden and their slaves in this uh, false utopia, this new golden age for Saturn. So if you're opposed to that type of thing and, and you don't want to be just another uh, chattel slave, then help us keep putting out the information they'd rather you not know and I just want to say thank you again for all the support to date, and I look forward to hearing your perspective, having taken this episode in, and keep on rocking in the free world, sacredgeometryinternational.com, caesarsmessiah.com, postflaviana.org, and until we meet again, Astro Monk, out.